the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, the little boy Samuel begins serving the Lord, and Eli has to confront his two sons about their many sins. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 18. The title of the message is, A Heart That Listens to God. 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. We have begun our study in the book of 1 Samuel, and we've been talking about how the, the book of 1 Samuel, it's about lessons from the heart. We saw Hannah's heart was one of love and submission to the Lord, and then we met Eli's sons who had hearts that saw worship as a consumer activity. Well, Samuel is leaving the home that has the right heart towards worship, and he's now going to be surrounded not just by people, but by ministers, servants of God who don't know and who don't love the Lord. We saw that Samuel's family was not perfect. His home life wasn't ideal. But this environment he's in now is awful. People hated bringing an offering to the tabernacle, something Samuel would now see firsthand. And yet, we're going to see that Samuel thrives while Eli and his sons persist in their compromise. How in the world does a young child grow up with these awful influences, yet only be influenced by the Lord? What was different about Samuel? Well, Samuel had a heart that was willing to listen to the Lord, and Eli's sons did not. So chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 18, and we're going to look at the contrast between Samuel and Eli's sons. Chapter 2, verse 18. Well, let's look up at verse 17. Remember, they were taking food that was not theirs. They were taking their portion before God was given his portion. And so chapter 2, verse 17 says, Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. And that God was very upset at what they were doing, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. They hated coming to the tabernacle to worship because they had to deal with these jokers. But, verse 18 In contrast to the great sin of Eli's sons, Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child girded with a linen ephod. Samuel ministered, the word there means to render assistance, to help, to serve. Samuel was assisting these guys, these sons who were the sons of the high priest who were doing the majority of the work because Eli was too old to do the work now. He was assisting them, helping them, serving them, but it says that he did it before the Lord. Literally, it means he did it among the presence of the Lord, in the midst of God's presence. 
And even though he was a child, the word there means between the age of four and 17. So for all this period of time with these bad examples in front of him, he helped them, he assisted them, but he did it also in the presence of the Lord. And it mentions he was girded with a linen ephod. The linen ephod was the garments of a priest. Now, Samuel was not from Aaron's family. He was a Levite, so he should not have been. I mean, Aaron's a Levite, but remember Aaron's family was chosen out of the Levites to be the priestly family. Samuel's not from that family, so he should not be a priest. But because he was dedicated to the Lord, Eli raised him to the rank of a priest, gave him this linen ephod that allowed him to serve inside the tabernacle. So whereas other Levites should be helping outside the tabernacle, maybe set up, tear down, you name it, helping people as they came in, Samuel's there in the presence of the Lord. So he's assisting these two guys who are doing all these wrong things, but he's also in the midst of the presence of God. Now, Samuel, he had no right to the high priesthood. He was not offering any offerings. He was only an assisting priest. But he was in God's very presence. Now, God's presence still dwelt in the Holy of Holies at this time, which makes Eli and his son's behavior even more heinous. I mean, think of this. Think of the people at the Wailing Wall today with their faces pressed as close as they can get to those stones, hoping to get as close as they can to God's presence that they believe is on the other side of that wall. Think of Hannah at the door of the tabernacle, coming right to the door, getting as close as she possibly can, and just crying and crying and crying over and over again until she can't cry anymore, desperately seeking closeness to the Lord to be heard by him. These two sons of Eli lived in God's presence. They passed through those barriers. No one else could, and they would go all the way into the holy place every single day. But it was nothing to them. Nothing. No big deal. It was just their meal ticket. Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests, right? You and I don't need to go to a location to get close to the Lord. He's right here in my heart. Do you see how special that is? And everywhere you go, the Lord is with you. Or have you forgotten? Or do you go about your day as if he isn't there? Samuel may have been surrounded by awful influences, but he was also surrounded by the Lord. He was surrounded by the best influence he could have. And he did have his mother's godly influence for the first four years of his life. Now, that tells me two things. Number one, how important are those first five years of a child's life? One of the things that we frequently heard in the early 2000s and late 90s All these articles were coming out to pastors and Christian magazines and things like that. And we're losing our youth. We're losing our high schoolers. We're losing our youth. And I remember I was doing some independent studies and and I was looking at numbers and data and things. like. And and there were some other data coming out saying we lost them when they were in fifth grade. We lost them when they were in third grade. We aren't losing them in high school. If by then they're walking away, it's because they weren't believing a long time before that. So how important are those first five years of a child's life? It has been my experience as a pastor doing family counseling that if you don't instill love, grace, truth, and discipline into a child's life before they hit five, you will face a very uphill battle trying to do so after that time. Very difficult. Now, this also shows me that when you know the Lord, he can preserve you even in the worst surroundings. If your family or your work situation right now grieves your heart, Know that the Lord is near to you. You carry him with you wherever you go. And he will help you walk with him, even though you may be the only one doing so. 
Verse 19, it says, Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Here's Samuel serving the Lord. He's the only one in that tabernacle who's got a heart for the Lord, but he's serving the Lord even though he's a kid. But Hannah's still serving her son even though they're separated. It mentions here that she made him a little coat, which means a robe. And it would be very likely to be a linen ephod to replace his older priestly garments because, as you know, kids, they grow very quickly. And thus, this would be very costly because those would have to be made a certain way. So while Hannah did not get to see her son grow up in her home, Samuel remained in her heart, and she served him the way that she could. You know, as parents, we want to give our kids the world, right? I mean, you do, you just want to bless them. You want to see them smile. You want to take care of them. You want to set them up for success. But what our kids need most is to know, well, they need Jesus most. But from us as parents in our relationship with them, what they need most is to know that they are loved. That they, as unique creations of God, are in our thoughts in a special way. That they can see by our actions that they're in our thoughts in a special way. They need to see our godly character, to see our service to the Lord. They need to be led, not driven. There's a difference. Led to live the same way. Now, upon this reunion a year later, Eli pronounces a special blessing upon the married couple the first year that they come back. Verse 20, And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give you seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. And they went unto their home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters. Here we see that God gives Hannah more children. Eli, his blessing that he pronounced upon them, his prayer was that the Lord give you seed of this woman for the loan that she lent to the Lord. Remember, it's not probably the best translation. It means the word loan or lent means the person being made asked. Remember, God didn't ask for Samuel, but Hannah had made a promise to the Lord, Lord, give me a man child and I will give him back to you. So even though God didn't ask for Samuel to be a Nazarite for life, Hannah had made him as if he'd been asked by the Lord for life. And so what Eli is praying is, even though Samuel can never be replaced, no child can ever be replaced. Samuel is praying that God would give her more children because of the one that was given to the Lord. And so God did bless Elkanah and Hannah with five more miracles. If you've been trying to have children, but God hasn't answered you yet, do not give up hope. Don't give up hope. God didn't have to do anything else for Hannah. He didn't have to do anything else. He didn't have to give her Samuel. But in his grace, not only did he give her Samuel, but he jump-started Hannah's body in a way that erased all her years of barrenness. And you know what? He can surely do the same for you. I'm not promising you how God will work out your life, but my point is he can surely do the same for you. Well, verse 21 has an ending I didn't read, and it says, and the child Samuel grew before the Lord. So while all this is happening, while Samuel's getting brothers and sisters, Samuel continued to grow in God's presence. Now, the word grew here, it can mean just simply to grow up in age, to get bigger, to get taller, to become more of an adult. But the word can also mean to raise a child or to care for them. Now, when we consider the verses that come after, when we get later in the chapter, when we start looking at Eli's sons, it's going to mention Samuel again. And Eli's influence with his sons come with a clearer statement of Samuel's spiritual growth, that his growth is not just a physical growth that's being referred to in this chapter, it refers to a spiritual growth. 
it makes more sense to look at this verse as saying that the Lord's presence raised Samuel. That the idea here that he grew, it says at the end of verse 21, before the Lord, that it was the Lord who raised him, the Lord who cared for him. Now, God cared for Eli's sons just as much as he cared for Samuel. Which means the only difference between Samuel and Eli's sons is that Samuel allowed the Lord to influence him. Samuel allowed the Lord's love and leadership to direct his life. Now, that requires a heart that's willing to listen, right? I mean, if God's trying to love you and he's trying to lead you, the only difference is is one group of guys didn't listen and Samuel did. So it requires, if we want to experience that care and growth of the Lord in our lives, we need to have a heart that's willing to listen, a heart that's willing to be corrected, a heart that's willing to be taught. Does that describe your heart? Are you spiritually growing now that Jesus lives inside of you? Because I promise you, he wants to raise you as his own. You're his son. You're his daughter. He wants to raise you. He wants to nurture you. He wants to teach you. He wants to lead you. He wants to direct you. Are you spiritually growing now that Jesus lives inside of you? If the answer is no, then you're going to become more like Eli's sons than you will like Samuel. And that is not a good thing. Look at verse 22. He says, now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons did unto Israel, and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said to them, why do you such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Eli, he begins hearing some things about his sons. Now, it mentions here that Eli was very old, and it's telling us this to show us that he was physically incapable of handling the offerings. He was also physically incapable of restraining his sons. And so it says that he heard all that his sons did unto Israel. Now, we already read what the sons were doing in verses 13 through 16 how they were taking more than they were supposed to take as their part of the offering, and they were taking their part before they would give the Lord his part. Well, during Samuel's early years of the tabernacle, they added something else to their sins. It says that they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, the word here assembled, it means to help or aid in the worship process at the tabernacle. Exodus 38.8 uses this word for the women who help make the mirrors used by the priests. When the priests would do the offerings, butchering meat is not exactly clean work. You're going to get dirty. You're going to get blood on you. You're going to get all sorts of things on you. A little bit of entrails here, a little bit of other stuff there. Just making sure you're awake. So they would have the big, huge brass laver where they would clean themselves. And they would use these mirrors. The women in Exodus 30 and 8, that they came to the tabernacle to make these mirrors for the priests so they could wash up and make sure they got all the gunk that had gotten on them through the whole process of all the butchering and the offerings that were made. This word was also used to describe the Levite service to the priests when they would set up, tear down, or assist with the daily activities at the tabernacle. Now, while women weren't allowed to serve as priests, they weren't allowed to do what the Levites did, they were able to volunteer their service in every other way. I chuckle because people often point out the areas in the Bible that a woman is restricted from serving. 
But the truth is those restrictions are limited to two positions, positions you can count on two fingers. And that's, by the way, both the Old and the New Testament. Those are the Old and New Testament. There were only two positions that a woman was restricted from. That means there's a ton of things that women were encouraged to do. While other religions in that day allowed women to be exploited as temple prostitutes, the Lord, he is radically different in his value of women and their opportunities to serve. I think it'd be more important to point out what can be done rather than what can't be done. There are certain things that I can't do. I'm not leading the women's ministry, but you don't see me pining away about that. Yeah, well, Pastor Will, you get to be up in front of everybody. Wonderful. If you'd like the target, you can have it. Now, sadly, this group of women now had more in common with pagan temples than God's plan for worship because Eli's sons were sleeping with them. That word is always used of improper sexual relations. Now, I don't know if they acted like ritual prostitutes or if this was just a perk that Eli's sons experienced. I have no clue exactly what this is referring to. But whatever it was, it was vile. And it was running off any of those women who just sincerely desired to serve the Lord. Because anyone that sincerely desired to serve the Lord wouldn't be engaging in this. And so upon hearing this addition to everything else he's heard about his sons, Eli decides it's time to confront his boys. And so in verse 23, he said unto them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Literally, it's, why do you act according to the things which I hear? Well, why I know the things I'm hearing are true. Things about you that are evil that everyone's come to talk to you about. I know it's true about you guys. Why are you doing this? Now, the entire focus of his opening statement to them is he wants to know why. I could say the same thing to Eli. Why'd you wait until it got this bad to say something to them? Why did it take open sexual sin to finally get you to confront them? Why aren't you involving the authorities? Adultery and defiling the tabernacle are both capital crimes under Moses' law. We usually ask why to someone because their actions don't make sense to us. Why are you doing this? That's why we ask why. Now, that shows us that Eli's why is more about being personally offended than concerned for the spiritual well-being of the nation or the spiritual well-being of his sons. He's basically saying, you didn't learn this from me. Why are you doing this? I know it's true. I see you guys. Why are you doing this? As a parent, it's important to help our kids understand why they sin. But just asking them why they did something is usually more of a reflection on my feelings about the situation rather than training them how to do better. It's usually more of a reflection on me than of them. When I confront my kids about their behavior, I start by asking why they thought it was okay to do something that God clearly says isn't okay to do. It's one of the first questions that I ask them. Why did you think it was okay to do this? God clearly says it's not okay to do this, so why did you think it was okay to do this? I'll ask them why they weren't concerned about how their actions would affect those around them. I'll ask them if they'd taken time to consider the consequences of their actions before they acted. And if they didn't, I'll ask them if it concerns them that they didn't, but that they just blundered into a foolish choice. Doesn't, does that concern you? I'll ask them how they think they could have handled the situation better. And I'll ask them if they've come up with a plan on how they're going to fix it. Those are all good questions because they have nothing to do with my disappointment or my offense or my reputation or my sense of being disrespected. 
Those questions are designed to train my child, to help them learn to make better decisions rather than just to confront them about my disappointment. If you want to be a better parent, you must understand that your child's sin isn't about you. It's about deficiencies in their walk with the Lord. And that should concern you far more than how their sin makes you feel or how their sin makes you look in other people's eyes. It should always concern us more. Eli's sons are full-grown men. They're likely between the ages of 35 and 45 at this point in time. So we're long past the training stage, and their sin has far-reaching consequences. So Eli, he just tells them to stop. He says, nay, my sons, which literally means don't do such things or stop doing such things. For it is no good report that I hear. You're not just sinning. You make the Lord's people to transgress. Eli challenges them. He says, you're supposed to ensure the people are obeying the Lord in their worship. But instead, you've seduced God's people to join in your wickedness. Now, what does it mean that the people have transgressed because of this? Well, God had promised Israel that he would dwell in their midst. You ever wonder, you ever read through like the book of Exodus and you're like, if I read about another connecting piece of the tabernacle, I'm going to lose my mind. There are parts and portions of it. When you, if I have to read about another way to butcher an animal in here, I don't get it at all. There's lots of reasons, and you can listen to my teachings on that to verse by verse through our studies of Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all that to get all those things. Obviously, it points to Christ. He's the substance to those shadows. Everything points to Christ in the tabernacle. But for the nation of Israel and their practical use, God said, I want you to be able to come as close to me as possible. I want you to have as close a relationship to me as is possible in this sinful world before the Messiah has come to die for your sins. And so, God said, the only way to do that is I'm going to create a worship structure that will allow you, a sinful human being, to come close to me. And that's what the whole tabernacle worship existed for. God said, my very presence will dwell in your midst. But if that's going to be, you have to follow my very clear instructions for worship to a T. Nothing can be compromised. It has to happen this way. Now, If they did not obey those instructions, God said, my presence will have to leave and I will have to judge you. And we see a very vivid picture of that in the book of Ezekiel, where God gives Ezekiel, who's already in Babylon because of the judgment that's come, God gives him a vision of his presence leaving the temple bit by bit. And then finally, God's presence is all the way down by a, a nearby river away from the city of Jerusalem. And he begins to tell Ezekiel the judgments that's coming through Babylon to destroy the city. So God, he did exactly what he said he would do. And we're actually going to see in the book of 1 Samuel that his presence will leave as well. He's going to have to judge Eli's sons because they don't repent. But this idea was their sin of compromising the whole worship atmosphere of the tabernacle. It wasn't just their sin. It was going to bring consequences upon the entire nation. It was going to cause God's presence to have to leave. When we read in the New Testament, we see something a little bit similar in the letter to the Ephesians, where Jesus, he says, dear Ephesus, I see all the work you're doing. You hate false teaching, but you have left your first love. And if you don't repent, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your candlestick away. Church may go on, but I won't be there anymore. 
When John had the vision in the Revelation, he saw Jesus walking in the midst of seven golden menorahs. And each of those menorahs represented one of these seven churches. And he writes to the messenger of these churches. Now, some people say that's an angel that was watching over the churches. Some people say it's a pastor. The point is he's communicating with these churches. And in particular, I would imagine the first people to see these letters would have been the leadership. And he's saying, Pastor, I'm glad that these things are good. But because you've left your first love, you're going to be doing church without me if you don't repent. Very similar. As church leaders... That's something that we should be heavily considering on a regular basis. I was talking to a dear friend of mine this week, and we were comparing notes just from a lot of different church experiences. And he said, you know, Will, this, this whole thing, this situation, and, you know, a lot of people are not handling it well. And, and I said, I know. That's what I've noticed as well. You know, for a church that's going to be more of a machine, that just kind of gets the job done, especially in the United States with all the resources we have. I mean, you can do a thing called church and make it look good. You can make it look good. But it doesn't mean you're being led by the Holy Spirit. If you're a project or a program-driven church rather than a spirit-led church, you're going to struggle. If we really want to make disciples, we have to be led by His Spirit. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.